I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We are still working our way through Luke, um, some of the some of the passages that are unique to Luke, actually. And so here we are again, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. So this is another one about prayer. And Alan, why don't you uh, take it away? Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our our lesson actually um, is about prayer, but it's, um, you know, prayer is, in Luke's gospel, something more than just a practice. It is a demonstration of one's character and perhaps more importantly, mm-hmm one's faith and the merciful, loving, and generous God that Jesus has, you know, tried to uh, help people understand. And, and one of the things we're going to see as well is that in this parable, the theme of reversal that's so prominent in Luke's account of Jesus preaching the kingdom also plays a role here. And, and again, as we have already seen before, Luke offers us a clue as to how to interpret the parable in our gospel lesson for this week. Uh, Verse 9, he introduces it by saying, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Mm And it's, you know, I've always loved the fact that Luke does this for us. It very much helps in some ways, right? Because some of the ones that we get to are so hard to interpret. And this one kind of gives us this this sense. Well, and, you know, here's the thing, though, too. I mean, most modern um, New Testament scholarship on parables recognize that there is some, um, um, you know, there are layers of meaning in parables. And we ought not to restrict a parable to just one point. And so it's, it's kind of a good news, bad news proposition, you know, right. because this can, this can keep us from seeing maybe secondary points in well, the parable. Well, that is a good point as well. Yeah. I mean, in fact, that's one of the things I love about parables because they constantly challenge us mm-hmm. um, to uh, work with the passage and read the passage and, and wrestle with it. And yeah. um, I, I've always been just awestruck really that jesus taught in this way that really is not limited to space and time but it's Mm -hmm. it's really forever and it's it's pretty awesome actually yeah so um now many recent translations try to render the greek construction pepoithatos ep hautois that is trusted in themselves in the new rsv with some version of convince themselves that's the common english bible or we're sure of that's the good news translation i really prefer the more literal translation of trusted in themselves and the main reason for this is that the verb pytho with the preposition epi is found in the septuagint as faith language Mm -hmm. referring to placing one's trust in god or taking refuge in god or as the case may be placing one's trust in wealth or idols, or other nations. And I think it's instructive uh, that Psalm 118, which is actually Psalm 117 right. in the Septuagint, in verse 8 says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in mortals. And it's it's pytho, it's the perfect, uh, perfect um, form of pytho with the preposition epi, uh, putting, op- offering those two uh, options, both either to place your trust in the Lord or to put your trust in mm-hmm. mortals, you know, take refuge in the Lord or put your confidence in mortals. It's the same exact thing in the, in the, in the Septuagint in Greek. So then in this case, I would say the parable addresses those who placed their trust in their own righteousness rather than in God. And I, I'm, I call to mind um, in Luke 10, 29, where in response to the dialogue about the two great commandments, the Torah scholar, Luke said, wanted to justify himself. And so, again, I think that language is very similar to what we're looking at, you know, trusted in themselves that they were righteous um, uh, righteous and justify, those are, are all part of the same word group. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, justify is dikaiao in the Greek. Um, uh, righteous is dikaios. Uh, righteousness is dikaiosune. It's all the same word group in the okay. Greek New Testament. Mm. Now, this is the first time that the verb exutheneo, to mean, which means despise or regard with contempt, appears in Luke's gospel. 
But the concept has already been introduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have seen the Torah scholars and the Pharisees complain because Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and mm-hmm. sinners at Levi's house in Luke chapter 5. Uh, we've seen a Pharisee complaining to himself that Jesus allowed a woman who was a sinner to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair in mm-hmm. Luke chapter 7. And then, of course, the Pharisees and the Torah scholars were grumbling because Jesus welcomes right. sinners and eats with them in Luke 15. Let me ask a question about this this word, because is this word, you know, we have the concepts already. Is this is this word particularly powerful, or is it... Um, it's, it's, a, it's an unusual word in the New Testament. It's not used very frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I don't know that I would say it's particularly powerful. It's just, um, you know, this is the right word for the concept, you know, okay. because this is what's but going on here. Did he reserve it? I mean, do you think he reserved it and did not use it earlier? Or I wouldn't say that. Is um, he building us just Luke, to... Luke just has a has that kind of vocabulary. There you go. There are so many words in the New Testament that are only used once, and they occur in Luke and Acts. Okay. <laughs> it's because Luke has this huge vocabulary. Okay. Yeah. So it's just a, I'm not... Don't read too much into that. It happens to just appear once and just here. Okay, fair enough. Um, But having said all of that, I would say that we should resist the notion that this parable was directed toward Jewish religious leaders only because Luke introduces this explanation of the parable with the incredibly indeterminate some. Yes. Jesus told this parable to some right. who trusted in themselves. Which I really like because we've talked before how there's these opportunities that Pharisees can be included in those um, to whom he's reaching out to. Absolutely. And, and um, this this indicates that as well. It's not it's not just a all Pharisees are bad and all, it, but it really well, says... Well, and the disciples aren't excluded from this either. Exactly, right? exactly, yeah. So, so and, and Luke, uh, uh, you know, I think... Uh, you know, uh, we've seen that Joel Green all along in in the in the travel narrative has been reminding us that the the audience is rather fluid between the disciples and the Jewish right. religious leaders, and it just kind of flows back and forth. And that's something we need to keep in mind. But Green also comments that this is not designed so much around identifying a culprit as a culprit, a particular Jewish group, as to hold up to scrutiny a set of dispositions and commitments that generate practices, perceptions, and attitudes that are set in opposition to the way of the kingdom of God. That's, I think that's the idea here, is that it's not about a particular group of people. It's about a way of life that is contrary to the kingdom mm-hmm. of God. Right. You can't... Right. It's like you can't you can't serve God and wealth. You know, right. you, you can't trust in God and trust in yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and even though a Pharisee does appear as the representative of this attitude and its correlative actions in the parable, we should leave open the address to any who might be tempted to do the same, right. including especially the disciples. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Okay, so that's kind of um, of the a backdrop to the actual um, parable itself. Yep. And so what, what happens as the parable begins? So Jesus begins the parable by setting the stage. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And it's interesting to note, just an aside, that one always goes up to the temple mm. in biblical language. One never goes down to the temple. But very likely, these two men went up to the temple at one of the fixed times of worship. You know, I think from our context, we tend to think of, well, these guys just happened to wander in at the same time and were praying privately. Mm-hmm. But these guys were very likely at the temple at one of the fixed times of worship, which took place at least twice daily. Mm-hmm. Sure. At the time of the morning sacrifice at 9 a.m. and the evening sacrifice mm-hmm. at 3 p.m. And as we have mentioned before, however, we cannot overlook the role that the temple played in ordering the worldview of the Jewish people as right. well as their world. It was the place that the very layout of its courts segregated Jews and Gentiles, men and women, priests and non-priests, clean and unclean. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it, in that way, just by its very layout, right. you know, it established and sustained the boundaries and distinctions that lay at heart of the Jewish religion as well as their society. And I think this would not have been missed by the people who heard the parable in Jesus' day. And yet in this case, you have two fellows who um, obviously are, are 
at that space where they can go to this location in the temple together, right? So they both must be clean. They both must, right. must have followed the rituals, which I think is interesting. Um, well, they're both decided. men. And they're both and so men, they of course. they can be in the court of men. Exactly. Um, and, and, yeah, apparently neither of them had committed any kind of, uh, done anything to, to render themselves unclean. Right. So they were able to be right. there. But nevertheless, I think it's important to note that in this place that embodies segrega- the segregation of the Jewish religion and Jewish society, uh, the two men who are gathered for prayer, for prayer are at the opposite ends of the social and religious yeah, spectrum. That's right. That's right. Um, in Jewish society, the Pharisee would have been seen as a moral leader, as an exemplar of righteousness, and the very embodiment of the kind of piety that was thought to honor God. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the tax collector would have been seen as corrupt dishonest, and a traitor to the Jewish people. Um, but in Luke's gospel, it's the opposite. Right. The Pharisees have been seen as antagonists of Jesus, while the tax collectors were among those who responded favorably mm-hmm. to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think this is interesting because Luke has an aside in Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30, where he talks about all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God, having been baptized in yes. John's baptism, and again, justice is dikaiosune, so we're talking about the same concept mm-hmm, here. Right. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law, not having been baptized by him, rejected God's purpose for themselves. So this is something this is something right. that Luke has already sort of set up, is that you know the Pharisees right, right. are on the wrong side right. of God's purpose. And the tax collectors, even though they were on the wrong side of social and religious boundaries in Jesus' day, they like other quote-unquote sinners, um, uh, were on the right side of the gospel and on the right side of the kingdom of God. Right. Interesting. So I'm I'm thinking about this setting, this scene, you know, like a play, and I could Mm. see one standing there, the other walking in, turning his head, looking with disgust, moving as far away as possible, and yet the space itself is... The same on either side. Well, and if it were a melodrama, everyone would cheer when the Pharisee came in, walking yeah. in, and everyone would boo when the tax collector Exa- came well, in. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. But you can, I, I think you can you can see that staging, which is really in, interesting. And yet, at the same time, it's it, it kind of hints to the people that aren't even welcome at the court. Right. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So then the Pharisee proceeds to show by his behavior that he was one such parable, one of the sum to whom this parable was addressed. Um, as he begins, uh, you know, as Jesus begins to recount what the Pharisee does and how he prays, um, Jesus says in verse 11 and 12, the Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. Now, while the Pharisee begins by thanking God in his prayer, any similarity with biblical prayer <laughs> stops at right, this point. Right. Not a single item in his list of thanksgiving has anything to do with God. Right. It's it doesn't. all it about doesn't. himself. It is. I thank is. you that I am not like other people, that I fast twice a yes. week, and that I give a tenth of all my income. That's really important to point <laughs> out. You know, and I keep thinking of when, when I am working with people, we're teaching prayer. What is it? Praises to God first, right? Mm-hmm. It's right. Adoration. And adoration. First. And and I think people don't realize how important that was, but this is an example of mm-hmm. why this is not going to work. Surely, surely. <laughs> Why this doesn't He's maybe count. He's praising himself. <laughs> yeah. And, and in fact, um, you know, the fact that he's talking all about himself has also um, been reflected in the English Bible tradition. There's a long tradition in the English Bible tradition that take the phrase pros hertan. So the Pharisee standing pros hertan was praying thus or... Does it mean the Pharisee standing prayed thus with or about himself? Now, the Geneva Bible, the King James Version, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James Bible, all have that. And, and mm-hmm. I'm especially, I was, I was kind of shocked that Bill Mounts, who's a Greek scholar, in his reverse interlinear New Testament says, to himself, he prayed to himself. Mm-hmm. And Tom Wright's New Testament for everyone says, about himself. So they all take it this way. Mm-hmm. Now, and there's a textual variant here. 
P75, which is one of the earliest and best uh, manuscripts of Luke's gospel, Vaticanus, which we know is one of the best copies of the whole Greek Bible, and other Greek manuscripts, some old Latin manuscripts, the Vulgate and Origen read literally, the Pharisee standing, praying these things either to himself or about himself. They changed the word order wow. completely. Interesting. Okay? It's the same words, but they changed it up huh. completely. And they clearly associate proshetan with the verb was praying. He was praying either to himself or about himself. On the other hand, the original version of Codex Sinaiticus, along with a few Greek manuscripts and some versions, simply reads, the Pharisee standing there was praying these things. Just leaves out the whole oh, about, to himself. Or, yeah, to yeah. himself. Oh, okay. uh, which eliminates this whole issue altogether. Now, in support of the Norris V translation, um, um, Codex Beza, D, Alexandrinus, A, other Greek manuscripts, versions, and Chrysostom read standing kathelton, which kathelton clearly means standing by himself. Okay. That's, okay. There's no way you can read that any other way. You, you wouldn't read that with, with, the, with the verb prayer at all. Um, oh, and, okay. okay. And so, um, but it's interesting that there are many... Um, you know, these, this whole tradition, starting with the Geneva Bible, the King James Version, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard, the New King James, um, uh, you know, they all support this idea of translating it somehow that the Pharisee was praying either with himself or about himself or to himself. And I think, and I would say, I think there's a, there's a textual variant here because... This whole idea of where to place Prosheltan created a theological problem for some of the scribes. You know, yeah, Sinaiticus, right. Aleph, and some other Greek manuscripts and versions just leaves it out altogether because the idea of praying with or about or to oneself must have been theologically repugnant. I mean, how do you right. pray to or about right. or with okay. yourself? So, right. right. And, 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 uh, Green may may go over the top when he says the possibility that we're to imagine the Pharisee praying to himself is voided by the actual content of the prayer. He addresses God. Right. I thank you, but he's clearly talking about himself. Interesting. So, so I mean, this is so this is a big deal. Now, yeah. most recent translations take Proshetan as modifying the par- participle standing. He okay, was standing, standing by, by himself, himself and, like the New RSV. And I do have that in one, uh, at least one of the um, reformers. I'm not sure. You know, I guess what they would have had at their fingertips. You probably know that. Well, here's the thing. I think, I, you know, the Geneva Bible probably right. would have been was, common. That's right? what I was thinking, yeah. Right, but here's the thing. The Vulgate says he stood praying with himself, literally. It doesn't It doesn't even say, there's no way you can render the Vulgate uh, as, as um, he stood by himself praying thus. It's just he, he stood praying with himself. That's what the Latin of the Vulgate says. Interesting. So there's no question. And I think I think these early uh, English translations must have been somewhat influenced I, I, by the Vulgate. Well, I would think so. I mean, there was an effort, of course, by by the reformers to get the original ones. But I think unless they had a reason to see that it was mm-hmm. absolutely wrong, right. I, I think they would have. Now, I'm not an expert in, the, in that. It's, but It's that whole Bible of the church thing we've talked right, about before. The right. Vulgate was the Bible of the church for a thousand years. Right. And it's tough to buck a thousand years of tradition. And they, if they saw something directly problematic, but something mm-hmm. that's more subtle like this, I'm not sure they would have, would well, have done. And, and they wouldn't necessarily have had um, the best... Greek manuscripts. We don't know what manuscripts they had access to. I was going to say, do we know? That's more on your your space. Well, they did. So Erasmus did have Codex Beza, but Beza says reads clearly, standing by himself, he prayed. Thus. Okay, because Erasmus so. is really who they go. At. I mean, he's right. the guy right. who, who 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 took the the Greek manuscript and then he he. he recreates the, it. The thing will. about Erasmus, though, is that he didn't always trust Beza because it differed from some of the other later manuscripts that he had. So he had some other ones as well. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. interesting. So yeah, yeah th- th- I probably, in pro- that's a long way to say they probably would have used that, um, that Vulgate is kind of that 
litmus test, if I you will. I think that would have been, I think that would have exercised a great deal of influence. I probably still, did. Interesting. Know. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So all of that to say, you know, <laughs> there is a big translation issue here and it goes back to the text and it's really more of a theological issue. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I think I could see he was praying about himself. I think, I don't, I don't think I could go with praying to himself. That doesn't make much that sense. That doesn't really make much sense. Um, um, but I, 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 I agree with the new RS, new RSV, the NIV, um, the New Living Translation, the ESV, they all follow this same approach. The Pharisee was standing by himself. So Proshelton modifies the participle standing mm -hmm, there, mm -hmm. not the verb praying. Mm -hmm. Now, nevertheless, I think it is quite clear that he placed his trust in his own righteousness. You know, just right. as, I mean, this, this goes back to the concept in the very introductory verse. Uh, enumerating all that he had done to demonstrate that his righteousness was intact. And uh, I'm reminded of the so-called Pharisee Psalm, which is Psalm 26. Huh? And I'm sorry if, I, if I'm spoiling it for, if, for you guys, because once I had heard, once I heard the, that description for Psalm 26, I was never able to really look at Psalm 26 Oh, my gosh, again, no, you can't. Because it's so self-centered. And there's, mm -hmm. nothing about, there's nothing about ascribing any kind of thanks or praise to God. Yeah, yeah, and I, 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 I read it after Alan pointed it out, and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah I can troubling. see that. It is troubling. Mm. It is trouble. I, I guess, I guess, I guess what I like about it in terms of Psalms, it's very human, <laughs> right? True. You know, it That's does true. remind us and, that and the Psalms are very human. The Psalms are very human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now that prayer, fasting, and tithing as the, were the three pillars of Judaism ought not to come as a surprise to us because Tobit 12.8 specifies this, and it, it's all over the place in, in terms of Jewish literature of, of the day. But more likely, they also functioned as boundary markers that distinguish this Pharisee from the other people who he views as thieves, rogues, or literally adekoi, unjust people. Oh, wow. <laughs> think about the unjust judge. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> and adulterers. So the other people, you know, are the thieves, rogues, and adulterers, and what distinguishes them are the fact that he prays, fasts, and tithes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now... Prayer was something that was expected on a daily basis, but fasting twice a week was above and beyond any requirements, as was tithing on all his income. That also went beyond any of the requirements in the law. You know, he so despises those whom he held in contempt that he doesn't hesitate to name the tax collector who had gathered with him for prayer in the same, very likely, worship ceremony in the temple. And actually, Fitzmaier calls this the height of the Pharisees, Chutzpah. <laughs> How do you say that? Chutzpah. Yeah, there you which, go. There you which go. Which is something like pride, the pride that the, right. that the reformers are going to talk about. Right. Basically. This it, is the height of his just uh, hubris, his his audacity that he is he is a, able to just call out someone else who's in the same worship with him, wait, same worship service with him as someone who is 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 despicable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Now, that's kind of the first part, but it kind of has the, the second part there right. where they comment on the tax collector, right, right? in and, his and prayer. Jesus tells us about a very different attitude in prayer on the part of the tax collector. Um, he says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, while both men stand, stand apart, so to speak, the Pharisee was standing by himself and the tax collector was standing far off. You know, obviously the Pharisee does this because of his own perceived self-righteousness, while the tax collector, uh, I, the fact that he's standing far off in this context suggests a posture of humility. Moreover, the fact that he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast seems to me to adequately demonstrate his con contrite heart, even though he does not mention any specific confession of sin. Mm -hmm. Um, he simply identifies himself as the sinner. Mm. God be merciful to me, the sinner. It's kind of like with the previous parable. Um, it, you know, you, you might think it would be a sinner, mm -hmm. but it mm -hmm. has the definite article, the sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Wow. So in contrast with the Pharisee who boasts about his own righteousness and does not ask God for anything. Right. But right. perhaps recognition for his yes, efforts, yes. maybe? Yes, yes, I, I would say that's what he's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. 
Exactly. The tax collector simply calls on the God whom Jesus has characterized as loving and merciful and generous to be merciful to me, a sinner. Mm. Wow. Now, the verb here, merciful, is hilaskomai. And along, uh, although that verb, hilaskomai, along with the cognate nouns hilasmos and hilasterion, occur in some key New Testament uh, text in the New Testament regarding atonement, the idea here is simply one of granting the mercy of forgiveness. And I don't think we should read anything further into oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. Now, the twist in this parable comes when Jesus says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, mm-hmm. went down to his home justified rather than the other. Mm-hmm. And again, the verb justify is dikaya. There it is. So it's that same, you know, righteous, just, justify. It's all the same and word you, group. I love that. You could, but you could see that more in the Greek than you, you can. can in the English translation. And, and that I think as you, as you came across that, those same groupings of letters and over your, over your tongue, I think, I mm-hmm. think it really kind of sets in. I think way. Luke's audience would have heard the, the continuity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, of course, this would have been shocking to Jesus' original audience because of the relative roles of the Pharisee and the tax collectors in Jewish society. They would have expected a story that held up the Pharisee as a model of piety. Mm-hmm. But as we noted earlier, Luke's audience was likely prepared for this twist because you know of, of the way right. these Pharisees and tax collectors play a role in Luke's gospel. Right. They may have even anticipated it. So the rationale for this verdict is one that Jesus has already made clear to the Pharisees in mm-hmm. Luke 14, 11, and, and he repeats it here word for word. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the basis for justification or being set right with God in the kingdom, not one's own self-made show of righteousness, but rather being truly right with God must come from the heart and cannot be confined mm-hmm. to actions. Mm-hmm. So again, the real point of the parable is how people respond to the God whom Jesus has consistently characterized as one of mercy, mercy. love, and generosity, and to the kingdom of God that he is bringing into their lives through his preaching and ministry. Do mm-hmm. they respond with humility right, and, and right. gratitude, accepting from God's hand the mercy that he offers freely, or do they respond out of their own pride? pride and self-righteousness, right. thinking, oh, I don't need to trust in that. I can trust in myself. Right. And I, I'm loving this. I'm loving that it. these are themes that they've heard and they know. And then I'm also loving that we continue to, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, tell these stories in different mm-hmm. ways. And I think that also says something, because how many folks know this, read it, hear it, but still don't fully grasp it. Right. 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 I think we hear it and we, we hear it on a level of, well, I don't want to pray aus- like with ostentation in worship or, or try to make, make myself look too good. I want to make sure and be humble if I'm, I'm leading worship as a liturgist. You know, we think of it that way. Mm-hmm. But, but really the parable is about what is your fundamental right. attitude toward God? Toward God, exactly. Is it one of recognizing I, I depend totally and completely on God's mercy, love, and generosity right. for everything and, and for my certainly for, for being able to be right in God's eyes. Or is it the one of the Pharisee where, oh, well, I don't need any help from you, God. Thank you very exactly. much because I'm satisfied with my own righteousness. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, well, well, we'll take a look at the at Calvin in particular um, after our break. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at what the Reformers have to say about this passage. And uh, surprise, surprise, they're going to hone in on the idea of justification. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, there are layers to this text for Calvin, actually, and that's who I spent my time with this time as a whole, although I I glanced at Luther as well and a couple other folks. But um, uh, And for Calvin, Calvin really loved this text. I think it it really spoke to him as what faith is and how one responds in faith. So, Well, it's almost ready-made for that whole debate between justification by faith versus justification yep. by works. And that's, and that's the fundamental theme that comes out of this for the Reformers, is what does it mean to be justified before God? Um, in a Reformation context, um, this is justification by, of course, faith alone, but what does that mean? And how do works fit within the context of justification? So, 
that's kind of the overall kind of framework um, as you start to move into this with with Calvin. But then he digs more relate digs more deeply into the relationship, and so he 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 says, look, this in this particular space, we're looking at the role of pride, mm-hmm. and because pride impacts works in a lot of cases, right? And we've we've we know that about our own personalities, Surely. right? I mean, um, we we do things and we want to be we want people to acknowledge us for it it Surely. seems like when we do something we're not acknowledged and i'm as guilty as the next person as it feels like it's it's meaningless and so um that's just kind of how we're wired we are. but calvin um wants to look at how it shows how pride impacts then this approach to god and 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 works as a whole so pride is a fundamental problem with all human beings aha yes <laughs> in other words Pride is kind of a pre-action attitude, almost a force itself that causes us to act and to claim action for ourselves. And one of the reformers called it spiritual pride specifically, and I thought that was a good way to, to, to view it. Um, instead of something we do, it's, it's something about our, our, our craving for acknowledgement that, that pride feeds it. Well, and as, and as I read this, it's like Calvin, he sounds incredibly modern here because uh, it, it sort of, it sounds a lot like what the quote that I read from Joel Green about how the point here was not to identify culprits, but to identify an attitude yeah. that, that expressed itself in actions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, yeah. And I thought so too. If you will, it's a sin that lurks within our humanity, causing us to elevate ourselves above others. And Calvin actually mocks human pride in this, in, in his, um, commentary um, saying, quote, it is astonishing that men are so silly as to dare to raise their crests <laughs> against God and to boast of their merits before him. Um, and, and then Calvin goes on to say that people try to hide their pride by asking a sham of a prayer. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that is really a, a key issue when it comes to this passage, mm-hmm. because people, people, you know, we mentioned this, I think, before, but it's the way people read this passage, it tends to be a bit superficial, I think, and maybe we can talk more about that later. Right, right. But it's, you know, this, it, it, again, what's, what, what, what's in the heart. So second and third issues that, that kind of relate to this. The second issue is a depraved self-trust, and the third is despising our own fellow human beings. And these two go together according to Calvin. One springs from another. For a person with vain self-confidence holds himself above other people. I love the fact that it's not just self-trust, it's depraved (laughs) self-trust. Exactly. Well, I mean, but yeah, yeah, exactly. But this... And it's true. I mean, because when you look at, I mean, as, as we were talking about, you know, the op, the, the you know, the self trust is set over against trust in God. Well, right. I mean, it's right. It's clearly the wrong choice. Exactly. Exactly. And Calvin is noting that the concept of that the concept of pride, um, this need to elevate oneself above another person, actually stems from not really trusting oneself, or perhaps one's creation. In other words. If, if, if you have this sense of confidence of God working in you, you don't have to, you don't have to try to show off or boast what, what you've done because you just, you just kind of live into this mm-hmm. space of I'm, I'm living into God's call on my life. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I don't have to put down other people to try to try to make myself look better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, this whole talk about self-validation, you know, this reminds me strongly of a passage in Moltmann's Church of the Power of the Spirit where he, he explores all of this, you know, mm-hmm. that the need for self-validation versus the ability to accept uh, justification from God's hand. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in other words, there is a need to validate one's being when a true confidence in living for God and from God is not mm. present. So going back to that concept. So, and, you know, I, I think, when I think about our current state, uh, our kind of egocentric world and these leaders um, that, that are forcing themselves in their own pride and their own ego and their own need for some kind of validation other than God, that they're willing to sacrifice people right and left. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really the ill of the day. Yeah. Well, we might say a depraved need for self-elevation. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> While extreme, I think the actions of many, including some of those doing some of these shootings, all stem back to this need for self-elevation. And um, 
I've said this for a long time. Um, I think this is one of the hugest calls on the church that and to mm-hmm. in, put people in. So we stop focusing our world on so much me-centeredness and start thinking ourselves on God-centeredness. And then that will move out. If we can live in a God's joy, then we start to embrace people and we stop doing these kinds of behaviors. You know, I, you, you, I, call, I, I had a memory here. I, you know, I used to teach the hermeneutics class at Southwestern Seminary, and I used a book by Grant Osborne called The Hermeneutical Spiral. He's an evangelical uh, scholar. But one of the things I loved about the text and the textbook and about just the approach, because it, it, it included my own, was this hermeneutics of humility that was mm-hmm. necessary. And yeah. that, that, that sort of, I, I, I mean, it's, need, it's needful in the pulpit and, and in the ministry as well as everywhere else. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So moving on, in, in connection with justification, there were a couple other Reformation concepts that are clear from this passage. Um, first is Calvin's discussion of total depravity. Um, and I think it's kind of obvious from, from what we've been talking about that this idea of total dependence on God would come into it. Mm-hmm. However, um, it, Calvin's the only one that really steeps this in this, this kind of language. I said he doesn't say, again, total depravity, but you're, you're reading that. And he recognizes that we should not trust in our own virtue. It is only when we realize that we are nothing without God that we can really work into his service. God actually, Calvin actually goes so far as to say that only our self-abnegation makes God favorable to us. Well, and, you know, I think... I think part of the problem with some of this language is that he's 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 talking in the 16th century, and in the yeah. in the 21st century, some of this language like total depravity and self abnegation has a real shock it value. Really to it really does. You know? It's but, it's but, but abhorrent I mean, actually. Well, it <laughs> is. It is. But at the same time, you know, the the concept I think is sound. I there think are so even too. people today who who strongly push back against the whole idea of just saying we're we're all flawed, we're all fallen, we're all mm-hmm. fallible. There are people in the church, even in the ministry who are right. pushing back against that. Right. And and I, I mean, I don't see how you can avoid that. Uh, well, I don't, I don't think so either unless you're completely kind of doing away with God and, 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 and Christ's, uh, Christ's work on the cross. Honestly, I, 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 I think, think it, I think it, 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 it turns our church into something that it's not, if you will. Well, and I think it, I think it stems from people who have been wounded and broken right. in their lives and they, they have, they have already been told how broken they are enough and right. they kind of feel a need to say, you know, enough, don't, don't push this on me. <laughs> well, sometimes I think, you know, too, I think we can take modern day language and soften this just a little bit for mm-hmm. folks. And, and I do that sometimes like in our prayer of confession. Yeah. Um, so that, um, it, people come more aware of it in a real sense instead of, Oh, I haven't done all these things. I'm not, you know, I'm not. I've had some pushback on prayers of confession in worship. Exactly. In context, so I yeah. think if you, you know, if you couch it in a little bit of, of mistakes, times mm-hmm. I've I've not paid attention to somebody. I think those kinds of languages make more sense because we all understand that language. It's like well, oh and the yeah, the language of falling short. I mean, that's exactly, biblical language. Exactly, right? exactly. So, um, but it's right there. I mean, it it still what it is. It's, yes. it's it's that I still need to depend on God. And yes, and and what's so what people don't realize is this is really such a beautiful concept. Actually, mm-hmm. um, it 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 takes so. Uh, how many of us have felt that total guilt of for something we've done or we didn't done? I mean, how didn't do? And then we, when you realize, I just depend on God and I just trust. Mm-hmm. It all falls away. So it just it's partly a lack of really understanding, I think, yeah. too. Yeah. All right. So the second Reformation theme here is to show that the Pharisee was using prayer as a work to pre- please God. In other words, it is another example of justification by faith alone. Um, so they're saying, look, prayer for him was really just a way to, it was a work because he was saying it, in other words, to please God. And I think after Alan introduced it, that maybe we can't even consider it a, a work, but I think that's what he thought it was. You know, I'm going to make this prayer to pray and thanksgiving. You know, it, it's showing just how wrong the whole space was. Well, and, and as I, I told, I told Christy this before we started, I, I'm not so sure that's giving too, that's not giving too much credit to the Pharisee. I think it, 
I'm not sure God even came into the into the mix for him. I think he's just so wrapped up in it. I mean, the right. language of Luke is that he's so wrapped up in his own self-righteousness that yeah. He, yeah. can't, he doesn't even have room for God. Right. And so Calvin gives him a little more credit for at least addressing God. Yeah, um, <laughs> he does address God. Yes, he does. Um, but Calvin does make it clear that the appearance of devotion does not itself reflect faith. Faith is that which comes from the heart and reflects a humbleness and purity of mind. And so this Pharisee, while seemingly doing the right thing by offering prayer, is using prayer to prove his worthiness. And I would agree with that statement 100%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Calvin particularly, particularly notices that the Pharisee ascribes all his good qualities to God, but it is the prayer that shows he trusts his own works and puts himself before others reveals the problem. And again, I I, I would say that Calvin has <laughs> given him too much credit. I think he takes all the credit I for his so own good too. qualities. I think so too. And um, yeah, again, I think he's giving a lot of credit to the idea that he even addresses it to God. So he's 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 given he's given more slack to the Pharisee than I would. <laughs> <laughs> People are not completely humbled. Unless, says Calvin, they, quote, learn to cease to trust in the merits of their works and place their salvation in God's free goodness. Mm, And this this passage that Calvin deems remarkable, right, this whole passage he just loves, reminds us that we can't trust anything that we do. All that we do, which is good and right and true, comes from God. Yes. Um, And it's a tough balance because, according to Calvin, we can attribute the good works to God, but that we can't go so far as to believe that those good works are the cause of our salvation. Surely. So it is tough, right? It is tough because we we look at people that we think are good and righteous, and, and therefore we would say, well, they're obviously people of God, but we might see somebody who's not doing those things and saying, well, that person must be absent from God's, from God's grace. And yet that's ruining the whole, well, the, the whole thing. The whole, the whole theme of reversal in the parable. Exactly. Warns us against that. Warns us against, exactly. Warns yeah. us against that. And so, um, and it's this interesting balance, even as you get to the practical church, even as you get to Calvin's Geneva and you get to, uh, and you get to Luther's church. I mean, the, the people there's this idea that the the devout are responding in this kind of certain way, and mm-hmm. so you can identify them. But wait a minute! Now you've just you've just ruined this whole passage. Mm-hmm. So it's it's I, I think in practicality, it's just it it works out being harder to make sense of in some ways um, in terms of um, um, what the reformers are getting getting at if you will i mean i think there's a, a practicality to the real church i mean you still have oh, no i i see that i see that see the balance I mean? the balance between you know recognizing that anything good i do comes from god but then also recognizing that you know i don't deserve any credit for it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly and yeah. and and not to place judgment on those who right. are not but it's it, it's just it's very this is very challenging with with hum, the human that's why the Roman Catholic system is so much easier. You it see is. these people following these rules, and you recognize that they're on this path. It's very clear cut, and it's not here. This is very hard. It's very mm-hmm. hard not to look at someone's choices right. and judge them, and that's exactly what he's warning us against: is well, don't do that. And I mean, you know, I think of the whole Matthew 25, you know, where Jesus said, I was hungry and I was thirsty yep. and I was naked, you know, and it reminds us that we can't assume that we know what, what Christ is doing in any person's life. Right, right. So the other implication of this passage for the Reformation era is the idea of equality before God. Mm. And of course, the actions of the Roman Catholic Church do not reflect the idea of equality. Um, so this passage lends itself as a kind of a proof text to condemn the ostentatious display of the clergy. An interesting note on this end is that this particular prayer was not ostentatious. He prayed it in private, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I bet they saw him. I mean, he did go to the temple to pray. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, I, I would I would push back on that. I, I would say I think he probably was there at a time of stated worship, and there would have been others there. Yeah, yeah. He he's praying it. He's praying it. He's standing by himself. Right. And he's praying it. So he's he's not necessarily praying it to be overheard by right. others. We can give him that much credit. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, he's, he's right. you know, he's there and he's aware that he's being seen. Right. <laughs> right, right. But yeah. 
So as it says, even a private, he was upholding all the things that he did to make him more worthy than the tax collector. And again, we have that balance between giving gratitude for the gifts we've received and yet not placing ourselves above others. The one I've just been just harping on is so hard. But at the same time, I'm not sure I can see, uh, you know, I don't see real gratitude in the Pharisees' prayer, really. I mean, (laughs) I I see bragging. I think I, I do see too. bragging. Yeah, you know, he's 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 lining. You know, yeah. he's one who trusted in himself that he was righteous, and he's outlining all of his qualifications right. for that confidence. Right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Finally, Calvin challenges us to think about the difference between true piety and the good actions it produces um, versus a false faith. He tried to cover up um, his inward vices with an quote outward mask. Um, what is interesting is that this does not really free him from the vices. They just turn inward. It is the opposite of freedom. It's kind of an enslavement. So Absolutely. that's another thing that comes out. Yeah. And then, of course, just like with Alan's discussion, then you have the, the kind of comments that come to the tax collector, um, and which is the example of true contrition. Calvin looks at the tax collector um, who shows great humility. And he notes that humility is being aware of our sins and being willing to confess them as to be reconciled to God. This is the practice of humility. And what do the commentators call it a virtue? And I think it's a good way to think about the practice of humility. Um, and oddly enough, most of them didn't didn't specifically give it that kind of positive action spin, you know, like um, a vice, something you do that's bad, a virtue, mm-hmm. something you do that's good. And I, I thought that was interesting that Luther and Calvin stayed away from the language of virtue. Um, well, I, th- I think it's a little bit uh, tricky because, you know, yeah, you can see humility as a as a Christian virtue, but if you really if you really let that go to your head, then you then start it, bragging about yeah, your I humility. I think that's the challenge, and I think that's why they stayed uh, the stayed away from yeah, it. I think sure. it caused that problem. Yeah. So in our passage, this tax collector obviously had behaviors that seemed at odds with the kingdom, and yet his contrition was favorable to God. And Calvin notes, and this is that. Um, that reversal Alan talked about. And Calvin notes, when we ask for forgiveness, it takes away our own confidence in our Mm -hmm. works. And then um, Calvin then proceeds to address a question I think everyone has. How can this man, whose actions have reflected great sin, be on par with the saints? And Calvin actually helps us by claiming that all people, regardless of their perceived saintliness, must begin with confession. Quote, some may be more, others less, but all common, all in common are guilty. And this is about how our hearts and our ability to acknowledge that what is good in us stems from God. Well, and I think that's probably a, a more helpful definition of total depravity I for do too. our day, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, some may be more, others less, but all in common are guilty. And this is about our hearts and our ability to acknowledge that what is good in us stems from God. Yeah. I, I think that's really, really yeah. a good point. Now, I added the second sentence there is not a quote, but mm-hmm. the first part is the quote from Calvin directly. So yeah. um, he admits that even the papists recognize this to some extent as they require pardon, but the recognition... But, but they recognize a partial righteousness done through the practice Surely. of works. So for Calvin, the foundation of faith is that God accepts us, quote, not because we deserve it, but because God does not impute our sins. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to reflect a little bit on how sometimes this parable can be a little bit difficult to uh, read well in a in a current context. So, Christy, um, uh, share with us your thoughts here. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about this idea of of where where our confidence lies, and I think the challenge here is really fundamentally of, of how we process our lives as humans. I mean, we experience our lives in this physical body with this self-awareness and then with the modern world um, pushed to, you know, be all we can be and claim our own identity. And 
we we kind of get the sense that it's all about me. And I when I deal mm-hmm. with confirmation students who are 14 and 15 years old, I mean, their whole worldview is all about them. Absolutely. And it's particularly in today's world. I don't know that this has always been true. But today's world, you know, we have the cult of the child. And mm-hmm. so these kids are so self-centered and they've not really practiced um, this idea of gratitude and um, towards others and others that take interest in their lives and others that help them. And I, I think that comes from parenting, but I think it comes from culture. Mm -hmm. I think it comes, you know, even from the kinds of shows they watch and the kinds of, um, it's all about reinforcing self-esteem. Exactly. And so you, you kind of get this, this, (laughs) this me centeredness versus really what scripture's teaching us about being kingdom people. And, and, and this idea that, um, that we are all together and we're all God's children. We're all equal under God and that God has, if you will, emptied God's self for us and likewise is, is asking us to empty ourselves so that we can serve in this fullness. And it's such a foreign concept to our, our secular world of meanness that I think, um, I think we kind of miss the I think we kind of missed the point of, of being at church. And so people are looking at church. I, I've, I've made this, I've made this graph in my mind, if you will. So, you know, where you have the me centered person and you have all the person's activities on the outside. So you've got, Oh, this is my football Saturdays. And, and one circle is, this is my cooking class. And these are my two and everything's centering around me and church becomes one of those little exterior circles outside that, that, that somehow balances with all the others. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a little bigger, but it's still outside of the, of the human center. So people talking about, you know, um, why they don't need the church because they are spiritual, right? It, all that fits into this concept. And really what needs to happen is that little circle needs to become the center, and then well, and we it, and all the other people then are outside or are, are, are the little circles outside that are all tied yeah, into sure. God's fullness. Yeah, and, and perhaps it's not church, it's God that needs to be in the center, right? That's what, Beca- that's the what kingdom I'm saying, of yes, God. that's yeah. what I'm saying, yes. Yeah, I think people think of it as church, not necessarily as, as the church being um, the place where they cultivate and express their relationship with God, they seem to have divorced that. You oh, know, well, that's true. Yeah, it seems yeah. to be separate, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet one of the one of the confirmation kids I have this year said something about, you know, I'm not sh- I don't really understand who God is, you know, and I don't see what where who how that how that benefits me. Yeah, how it benefits <laughs> me and listen to even yeah. without I mean, she's a kid, without really understanding mm-hmm. that that's how they the world is is um formed. I mean, it's all yeah. about how does this person benefit me? How do how do the surroundings benefit me mm-hmm. instead of how am I serving this this beautiful world I've been born into? And yeah. it's very different. And it, and it's 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 it has permeated culture. And in fact, I think <laughs> I'm going so far as to say I think it's caused kind of um, a disease of culture. Actually, mm, yeah, you know? I would agree. You know, a lot of us who were raised in my generation. Um, <laughs> Benjamin Spock was the guy who wrote the baby book that we were mm. raised on, and it was not necessarily a very helpful um, um, experience for a lot of us um, because there were things like, you know, you don't spoil your child, you let, let them cry in their bed at night, you know, and things oh, right, like that. right, right, exactly, and, exactly. Um, um, so I think there was this almost... Um, opposite extreme of cultivating self self-esteem in people and i think all of it really boils down to that whole sense that calvin was talking about the need for self-validation you know we we have such right. a strong need exactly that's part Exa- of who exactly. we are it is and it I, is i don't know that i would say that it's necessarily sinful but right. we tend to take it and right. run with it in ways that are right. hurtful to others right. or hurtful to ourselves. And that's how I define sin. I, I, I agree. I agree. And I think, I don't think we deny partly part of this is part of our creation, but it's how we, how we, how we build that idea into 
into living into God's space, into it, and 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 if you will, if you're living into God's space, I think that natural affirmation comes because you you are you have you have if you have um, given yourself completely to God, mm-hmm. and then when that happens, then you have this surroundness of 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 really everyone else is in the same space, and all of a sudden, this whole necessary affirmation just becomes part of the being part of it's the, just already there it's just there yeah. and we've we've all been yeah. in that experience where where we've haven't thought about maybe something we've done but we've just done it because our heart tells us to do mm-hmm. it and maybe maybe somebody was was drowning and we automatically ran out to go grab right. that person and we weren't thinking oh am i going to get a big accolade who's going i'm going to make the newspaper we just do it because we it's in the core of We're our being it, and yeah. then afterwards you realize what's happened and the whole affirmation is just in because your heart responded to it. Right. Everyone's had that experience mm-hmm. and yet somehow we forget that and we go after these other yep. little and we just want more and more and more and more and more. Well, and, and we approach it from the standpoint of comparison. Right. You know, oh, oh, you don't, you don't have a, you don't have an iPhone. Oh, you have an Android. Right, or, right. or, oh, you don't have a smartphone, you have a flip phone. Or, um, you know, oh, you don't have an electric vehicle. Oh, you have a gas-powered vehicle these days. Right, right, right. right. Or um, in the kids, oh, you don't have a Chromebook? Oh, I have two. <laughs> well, <laughs> or, I might push back on that as not being, cause since they are now issued by the school, no one cares, Well, right? but the thing about it is that, that some of the kids in my class, in my confirmation class, go to schools that don't <laughs> issue Chromebooks. There you go. I was going to say, in my son's, son's world, it's like, oh, yeah, this piece of junk. <laughs> but right. No, I could see that in being, yeah. in being oh, my school's better than your school. Or, right. And I think... I think this turn can flip it, and this in itself seems kind of minor, but I think it flips itself mm-hmm. right into I am not getting the validation that I need here, uh, and therefore um, because of this kind of thing, and so then it flips to so what can I do that's so bad that then I'm finally gonna someone's gonna see me either yeah either acting out that way or I think the opposite is you know I'm going to achieve so much that mm-hmm. people have no choice but to validate right me. right <laughs> I, I mean I honestly feel like I, I might be pushing too far I, I think this is Vladimir Putin honestly yeah. on a huge yeah. scale yeah. I really really do I mean I just don't there's just no reason except that he needs some kind of mm-hmm. of personal validation for all of this stuff. He's not getting the the kudos he wants as a great leader, so he's going to start killing people, mm-hmm. you know? I mean... Well, and, and as I said, you know, it, it, Calvin's comments about this reminded me of, of Jürgen Moltmann's. Uh, he, has a, he has a section in The Church and the Power of the Spirit where he's kind of bringing in... Uh, Freudian psychology and things like oh, that about yeah. neurosis and yes, how yes, what yes. we repress comes out even worse. Yep. And, um, you know, he, he, he related it to this need for self-justification versus seeking our justification in God. Now, justification may be not the right word for us, but, you know, validation perhaps this yep, need yep. for self-validation right. or for others to validate us versus the recognition that god validates us simply as a gift exactly and that's that's what's so important about god because and i was on the same space there earlier thinking about freud and thinking about um, you know, he takes his idea of, of, of psychoanalysis and he applies it then to civilization. So mm-hmm. I was thinking about his mm-hmm. civilizations and its discontents, mm-hmm. talk, where the neuroses of the individual turns into the neuroses of a country. Yeah, so, and it, it does, it really impacts the entire, um, the entire uh, um, if you will, uh, dialogue and experience of the whole world. So these... It, this is huge stuff. Yeah. So what, what becomes seemingly just a, a little thing about my prayer and if I really comes from my heart really is, a, is an entire commentary on um, humanity. Well, yeah. And, and that brings me back to, you know, Joel Green's comment that this really isn't just about prayer, but it's about a whole attitude that reflects itself in actions. Yes. And, and, 
you know, as I as I mentioned before, um, I'm a, I'm a little concerned about the way this parable has been read in the church because it comes across as, well, you don't want to be too. Um, you know, basically prideful in the way you pray or in the way you lead worship or in the way you 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 act when you're at church. You, you know, you have to have this sort of proper sense of humility, whether it's genuine or not, mm-hmm. right? And and that misses the point of this passage because the point of this passage is this fundamental orientation. Yeah. Do we derive our validation as persons from God's mercy and love and generosity that Jesus, you know, this image of right. God that Jesus has been cultivating throughout the Gospel of Luke, and and all you know, basically the kingdom of God offering us that validation right. as a gift if we will just turn to Him and accept it, or do we turn our practice of our Christ, quote-unquote Christian faith into a religiosity that becomes a kind of work whereby we, we, you know, we can uh, base our own validation on what we have done, and so we sort of build our own stairway to heaven, so to speak, right. by, by, by the things we do right. in, for the church, quote-unquote right. for the church, but which are really an elaborate means of self-validation. So, exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's the challenge. Yes, it is. But yes, I hope is. I hope that gives you some ideas on how to preach this. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.